jump into the text that we're going to be reading. I want to tell you what it is so you can uh, take a moment to get there. Uh, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 14. Uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 72. And so if you have um, a Bible, uh, if your Bible is paper, um, it is kind of the beginning of like the, two, the second third of your Bible. It's one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Oh, and there it goes. It's like a tumbleweed. <clears throat> Fifle goes west. Oh! There. Okay, he's going to stay right there. All right, so, but if you have an electronic, if you're using your phone uh, to, to read your Bible, we also post all of our uh, sermon notes. Uh, in the YouVersion Bible app. So if you have the YouVersion Bible app and that's the way that you read the Bible, I would encourage you to open that up. And then at the bottom right-hand corner of your app, there is an icon that says uh, more. There's three little lines. If you tap that icon and then go to events and you will see the Bethel Youth event, go on and and tap that uh, event and then hit save so that you can access these notes more than just tonight, because after uh, 8.15, um, the the notes are no longer available. YouVersion um, doesn't make them available. And so if you save it, um, you can access it. And the, one of the reasons that you would save it is oftentimes there are resources at the bottom of these notes. Like tonight, there is about three different um, articles that you can read on your own to be able to just gain a deeper understanding of the context of the text that we're going to be talking about. Um, I will, I almost didn't link one of them. One of them's like, 60 pages. It's like a PDF of like someone's, I don't know if it's like a dissertation for like a master's program or something, but it's like 60 pages long. But if you want to skim through it, it's really, really good. The font is really small. I apologize. So you probably want to look at it on a computer or a tablet. But uh, those resources are really helpful. They've helped me uh, gain a deeper understanding of uh, the passage that we're going to be talking about. And that's why we link those those different um, resources at the bottom of those notes. And so if you are there, um, we're going to get there in just a moment, but I just want to say how thankful I am uh, for our youth leaders for stepping in and making last Wednesday happen because COVID was making its way through my house and um, we are on the up and up, which is really, really good. And so that's why we weren't here. It was kind of like this mad scramble because I tested positive on Tuesday. And so um, huge shout out if you were here last week to Brandon. Brandon um, set up the sound system in here. He preached the sermon, came up with the discussion questions. And so he's an all-star, but also uh, Kate Kaylee, uh, no, Kaylee, you weren't here last week either. Kaylee is with us. She got in a crazy car accident last Monday. Was it last Monday or Tuesday? Tuesday morning, like, rolled her car. It is pretty insane. So it is, like, by the grace of God that she, like, walked away from that. And so praise Jesus for that. So she was resting last week as well. And so um, all of our youth leaders, huge kudos to them because they took on responsibilities that they don't normally take on. And so can you guys give a round of applause to your youth leaders uh, for all that they do? They are amazing people. And yeah, 
And I'm so, I'm so glad that no matter um, if myself or Megan or Kaylee or whoever's gone, like the word is still preached and um, the gospel is sang through music and we talk about those different things in small groups. I'm so thankful for the amazing team that we have. So if you've been with us for the last few months, you may know that we have been walking through the gospel of Mark. Um, it's, uh, we are nearing the end of it. We are almost, we have about three sermons left and we will have preached through every single verse of the gospel of Mark, and, uh, which is pretty awesome. And we've discussed an entire book of the Bible. It's not our first time discussing an entire book of the Bible, but it's the longest book of the Bible that we have ever preached in Bethel Youth. And so really excited about that. And I hope that you have learned um, a lot through it. I hope that you've learned about who Jesus is, as well as what our response should be in light of what he has done through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. And um, we're going to be looking at the last section of Mark chapter 14 tonight. And these events are also recorded. If you want to look at these events um, written by other uh, people in the Bible, you can read Matthew chapter 26, Luke chapter 22 through 23, or John 18. And um, I would encourage you to read these different accounts, and it will help bring just a fuller picture uh, to these events. And some of the authors include details and leave out details that um, the other person kind of whatever. So it's kind of this vice versa thing. So I would encourage you to read those different things. So I want you to stand with me. We are going to read uh, Mark 14 verses 53 through 65. I want to invite Madison to come up here. She is going to read those verses. And um, you might wonder, Taylor, why do we stand each and every week? Um, why do we conclude with like, this is the word of the Lord? Um, it's very, very simple. Um, there's, there's something about when we like get up out of our seat, when we stand, there's just something different different about the posture, and um, we believe that the Word of God is inspired by God and that it's living and that it's active and it's not just for 2,000 years ago, but it's for us today and God speaks through his word. And so we just want to give honor and reverence to that. And so if you've wondered, why do we stand? Why do we say this is the word of the Lord? We just want to make those declarations and those outward signs of um, the importance of scripture to us. And so Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the other chief priests. The elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then someone stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another, not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, Jesus said. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of, the, worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophecy. Sigh. And the guards took him and beat him. Awesome. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
If yeah, if you um if you're interested in we try to have a student um read the the passage every single week and so if you're interested in reading the text before the sermon um let your small group leader know and uh, we will contact you uh, and ask you. So first question that I want to answer is what is happening here? <laughs> that's the that's question I want to answer. It's a very very simple question, but uh, really what's happening is Jesus was essentially brought before everyone who hated him for a trial to see if they could find a way to prosecute and put him to death. Maybe you gathered that from reading that, but one of his disciples, Peter, uh, was following at a distance to ensure that he didn't get mixed up in the chaos of Jesus being arrested, Jesus being tried, and Jesus getting beat up. Um, I want to ask a question, and I want this is not a rhetorical question. I would love for you to, to answer this question with your words out loud. Have you ever been blamed for something you didn't do? Okay. All right. So what are, what are some of those uh, in somewhat of an orderly fashion? Yeah, you can raise your hand. Yeah, go for it. You stole an award from someone. Like literally stole an award? Like a plaque or something? Nice. Got it. Got it. Got it. All right. Anyone else? Yeah, Reagan. That's true. How many siblings are here that you blame the other sibling? Yes. I totally did that all the time growing up. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Did you uh, did you feel bad when he was getting that spanking? Yeah, exactly. Sophia, is your birthday on Monday? Nice. Happy birthday, early birthday. Okay, yeah, go for it. I'm so sorry. What was that? Don't you hate that? Gosh. Yeah. Are you serious? You where is it? Just like in your dresser or? Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Ceiling bobby pins. Yeah, go for it. And then we'll end with Ceely. <laughs> so she was right in blaming you. Oh, okay. So in a timely fashion. Yeah, you're fine. All right, see you, last one. I'm sorry. Car rides with family, like siblings, is can be very terrible, especially depending on how long the ride is and if the seats are full. Yeah. We have a, what? 
Oh my gosh. I don't know. We, so our kids, uh, Madison turns five in a couple, in like two weeks and then Hayden is three and Peyton is one. And, um, we audiobooks um, on Spotify have been a game changer for us. So on Spotify, there are store like Disney stories and all these different things. And the Aladdin, uh, audiobook on Spotify is an hour and 15 minutes long. It's crazy. It's like, they literally are rehearsing the entire movie and our kids are like locked into these audiobooks. And so we listen to them all the time. Um, but it's funny how it, no matter if it's big or small, uh, we feel this deep desire to defend our innocence, right? When, when we get blamed for something that we didn't do, no matter if it's like stealing a bobby pin or hitting your, yourself on the lay or whatever it is, like we will, we will prove that it was not us. And it's funny, I'm in my 30s and I still feel the need to strongly defend myself even for the stupidest things. Um, I called my wife Megan to ask, what are some of the things that I defend myself about? And we couldn't really pinpoint one thing, but uh, there's probably a lot. But one thing that we both um, thought of was our oldest daughter, Madison. Um, she's hilarious, but she will defend um, herself of why she hit Hayden. So this happens a lot of times um, at like bedtime and stuff. So they share a room and it's chaos 90% of the time. And um, we really wish we had four bedrooms so that they didn't have to share a room. But anyways, um, Madison will defend why she hit her sister with this. She, um, This is like word for word and I'll try to say it exactly how she says it. She's like, well, she was turning the light on. And so I hit her. And so she's because like Hayden will get out of her bed. She'll turn the light on. It'll make Madison mad. She'll hit her sister. Hayden starts freaking out. And that's how she'll justify herself. And it's funny how she'll admit it, but then she'll try to justify why she did it. Why do we do this? First off, we're selfish. <laughs> we're selfish people. That's just the way that it is. But secondly, we do it because it's in our nature, because we want people to think highly of us. Um, it's in our nature for people to see us as people who are put together and who don't make mistakes. And if we have, quote, like marks against us, we feel that they, that may taint the way we are viewed. And in the text we read earlier, we see that Jesus is doing quite the opposite of what we often do. He's not defending himself against massive false accusations. Like I said earlier, Jesus was before the people that hated him most, the high priest who was Caiaphas. He was before the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, and the Sanhedrin. And this trial took place in two different phases. And we are, are studying the first phase, which is with the, um, the Jewish religious system. And then the phase two was, with the, was a civil trial with the Romans. And even without any background or cultural context, just by reading the interaction, you can probably gather that this was most likely, um, it's a sketchy at best trial. Reading verses 55 and 56 and doing some research, we learned that the prosecution was not legit and it was illegal on many accounts. I want to share those things with you. The trial happened at night and was also held in the home of Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest. This doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but it was. Jewish law stated that trials had to be held during the day and in a public place so witnesses could be called upon. And this law is derived from Numbers chapter 35 and also in Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. It says, On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one 
witness. So this is Jewish law that they were going by. Two chapters later, verse 15. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. It was necessary to have two witnesses with a cohesive testimony in in a case requiring the death penalty. Even the slightest inconsistencies would negate their testimonies. And the present Jewish leaders were fishing for stories and claims to convict Jesus. Can you imagine the frustration of the religious leaders, though? You plan for a long time. You put all of your ducks in a row. You need to rush to get the trial over with um, so it doesn't affect your Passover traditions. But the testimonies to nail Jesus aren't lining up. You're like, you had one job. Your stories just needed to match, and you can't even do that. Many false claims are not specifically mentioned, but one is. Verse 58, Jesus would destroy the temple made with human hands, and in three days build another made without human hands. And so the question is, did Jesus actually say this? Um, Quick answer, no. Long answer, no, but with some nuance. The closest statement we have recorded is in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. And this is where Jesus is clearing the temple of its corruption. And they ask, how can he do this? And he makes a claim about how the temple will be destroyed and in three days it will be rebuilt. And you're like, Taylor, that's literally exactly what they said. But in verse 21, Jesus is referencing his body, not the physical temple. Verse 59 says that even this claim didn't hold up and the testimonies did not agree. And as you can imagine, this room is probably boiling with tension. They'd been questioning him and had yet been able to convict him per the, uh, the law in Deuteronomy 17 that instructs them that they have to have agreeing witnesses. So all this time, Caiaphas was not the one doing the questioning, but things had gotten to a place where he felt the need to get up out of his seat, stand up, which is a big deal, and to interrogate Jesus himself. So we need to pause. We need to be reminded that this was all taking place. This seems like a huge, unfair thing that's taking place. But we need to pause. We need to be reminded that this was taking place under the sovereign hand of God. Nothing was taking place outside of God's hand of direction. And God was ultimately bringing about the healing of our sin, as well as the continual uniting of heaven and earth through what Jesus was about to do. The prophet Isaiah predicted what would happen to Jesus. Chapter 53, verses 5 and 7. But he was pierced for our transgressions. And this was a prophecy about Jesus. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. So what we see in Mark 14 is not by accident. But it's on purpose. Not out of punishment for Jesus, but out of a love for humanity. So Jesus refused to respond to the false claims that were made about him. And his accusers tried to incriminate him with his response to the claims that were, that were made. 
And it's interesting that even though Jesus was in great agony, if, if you remember back a couple weeks, if you were with us, you remember that in the Garden of Gethsemane, when, when Jesus was praying to God the Father, he's like, please take this cup of suffering away from me. He was in great agony and deeply distressed um, just a few hours prior. But his countenance, or his countenance then and now communicates that even in the midst of his distress and even in the midst of his agony, he was still trusting the will of the Father. And I'm, I'm not about to compare us to Jesus, but at the same time, what would happen if we would continue to trust God amid stressful, depressing, and agonizing situations? And I have to, th- I have to think about myself. I have to think about the way that I handle stressful situ- situations. And naturally, how I respond to those things is I often get myself worked up. I get really bent out of shape. And instead of trusting God, instead of trusting the Father that his hand is is on the problem and that my role is to trust him, this doesn't mean that I, and and, and if I'm trusting the Father, it doesn't mean that I don't do anything. Jesus knew what needed to be done. It affected him deeply on an emotional level, but he still trusted God. God, whatever the situation is, it may be affecting you on a deep emotional level, but we have to remember that God is sovereign, that God is in control, and he's got you, and he sees you. And Jesus was silent because he knew the outcome was in the hands of the Father. He didn't feel the need to defend himself against these false statements. And Jesus was asked one final question, verse 61. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And he responds, verse 62, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So this, this whole chunk that, that we're studying is hard to kind of see the deep significance if you um, don't explore the Jewish culture that this was taking place in and being written in. And this kind of one, can we be honest, it's one of the frustrating things about reading the Bible. Because a lot of times you can't just read it at face value. You have to put in the little bit of extra work to try to understand like what is taking place. And when reading the Bible, we have to remember this quote from Dan Kimball. He says, the Bible was written for you, not to you. We will not understand things upon first reading because it was written to a people 2,000 years ago or longer, if you're reading the Old Testament, um, in a culture that is much different. Than ours, And this means that we cannot just read a Bible verse. We need to read chunks of the Bible to help us gather context of what's taking place. But Jesus breaks his silence and responds to the question. And I believe it was for two reasons. It was the unveiled declaration of him being the promised Messiah, the Son of God. Up until this point, the only people that Jesus had explicitly told that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, were his disciples and the people close to him. And I think the second reason that he broke his silence here was he was claiming to be God. Um, it, it, would, it would be considered blasphemy by the Jewish leaders, and we'll explain why that's important. But in this case, Jesus is the Son of God, but to them this was blasphemy, and blasphemy received the death penalty, and this was the beginning of the end of Jesus's life here on earth. In his response, he spoke of his place in heaven as well as his predicting his second coming. One commentator said this about Jesus's response. He says, Jesus, when asked under formal oath to incriminate himself, essentially said, you now stand in judgment of me, but I will be the ultimate judge 
Here we see that Jesus was on trial. He seemed to lose, but he really won. His conduct at his trial showed his innocence and was all part of the plan of redemption, which we must receive as a gift from God. And verse 64 tells us that this was the statement that condemned Jesus. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. And then some of them began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. So typically in, the, in this culture, um, a, it, when a person was mourning or deeply distressed, they would tear and they would rip their clothes as an outward sign of the deep like emotions inside of them. The thing is, like clothes in this culture were extremely expensive and sometimes they were hard uh, to come by. So des- destroying something of, of this much value meant that the feeling had to be so incredibly strong for them to do it. And you, you heard in this passage that Caiaphas, the high priest, just began to rip his clothes open when, when he said, blasphemy. Some commentators feel why Caiaphas ripped his clothes was not out of the distress of Jesus claiming to be God, but more out of trying to manipulate the rest of the people. So once they decided that Jesus was going to die, verse 65, they blindfolded him. Some of them became to spit on him and beat him. While this occurs, one of his disciples was witnessing everything. Verse 66, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow was one of them. And again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for for you are a Galilean. He began to call them curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man that you are talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. The reading of this passage should sober us and cause us to pause. It should cause us to reflect on our life and the way that we view false accusations, ridicule, and humiliation under the name of Jesus. David Guzik comments on this text and says, A believer should respond or could respond in three ways. Bravely endure pain and humiliation for the sake of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, he said, How ready should we be to hear slander and ridicule for Jesus' sake? Do not get into a huff and think it is strange, uh, it is strange thing that people should mock you. Or a response could be, be more diligent in praising Jesus. Charles Spurgeon also said, said, if men were so eager to put him to shame, let us be ten times more earnest to bring glory to him. Is there anything we can do today by which he may be honored? Let us set about it. Can we make any sacrifice? Can we perform any difficult task which would glorify him? Let us not deliberate, but at once do it with our might. And lastly, a response could be, have more confidence in the finished work of Jesus for our redemption. Surely I know that he suffered, that he who suffered this, since he was verily the son of the blessed, must have the ability to save us. Such griefs must be a full atonement for our transgressions. Glory be to God, that spittle, 
It's a funny word. Spit. On his countenance means a clear, bright face for me. Those false accusations on this character mean no condemnation for me. Charles Spurgeon was a pastor in like the 1400s or something like that. So that's why he used this weird word, like spittle. This would also have been a strong, this text would have been a strong reminder for the Roman Christians who were the audience of the book of Mark. The reminder would be for them to be on guard. And this is a reminder for us as well. Be mindful of the depth of the foundation of your allegiance to Jesus. If Peter, an apostle and a leader of the disciples, denied knowing Jesus, then who are we? Peter, out of fear for his well-being, which is legit, was afraid to be associated with the lordship of Jesus. Our allegiance to Jesus cannot be based strictly on words because the disciples insisted that they would never, just hours before this, that they would never deny Jesus. But here they were. Peter denies Jesus three times. The other disciples have deserted him and are hiding. So what do we take away from this passage? I want you to, to, to walk away with this. God's sovereignty is at work even when we don't realize it. God's hand is on our lives even when we don't realize it. So I want to ask you just a question. Where does your trust lie? Do you trust that God is sovereign, that he is above all things, and that nothing is outside of his will? And I may not understand how God can use, can cause good to come from evil. But what I do see is that through all of this mess, Jesus is bringing redemption for humanity. Both Judas and Peter, they fail Jesus. The two, two of the disciples, they fail Jesus. But in the end, their stories differ significantly. Peter fails Jesus by denying him, but later he is restored through forgiveness, and that's in John chapter 21. But Judas believes his denial was the end, and there was no coming back, and he takes his life because of it. Peter mourns, but also recognizes that there is restoration. There's no denying that we will fail Jesus in this life, but what will your failure cause you to do? If God is sovereign, we know that God knows your failures before you do and still loves you. And God is not distant from your failure. Instead, he is near. So be close to God. One must be in union with Jesus. So we're going to take a few moments in our small groups and we're going to talk about this whole theme and this whole concept through a few discussion questions. So you have about 15 or so minutes. Your small group leader will dismiss you uh, when we are done. Um, the way that we're breaking these up are um, the guys are in the back of the room. The girls are in the front. On this side of the room are um, high school and on this side of the room uh, are middle schoolers. So pray that you guys have a great conversation.